your farm and your future matter to us. Welcome to Dairy Stream, a podcast focusing on opportunities and challenges impacting the future of dairy. This podcast is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations fighting for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Joanna Guza. Today is our final episode in the Workable Workforce series, and we are focusing on legal aspects of HR management. We want to provide you with tools and recommendations to be prepared and organized with your employees, which we know are a valuable asset on your farm. Our expert today is Troy Thompson. He is a management side employee attorney at Axley Brindelson Law Firm located in Madison, Wisconsin, where he also serves as the firm's labor and employment practice group leader. He represents his clients in a broad range of labor and employment, risk avoidance, and business litigation matters. Our first part of Dairy Stream is going to focus on some of those general HR items. And then the second part, we'll dive into quote unquote fun topics. And I say that with a lot of sarcasm, talking about workers' comp, discipline, leave of absence, and exiting the organization. So to get started with that general HR management items, Troy, what types of employment policies should a farm have in place? Well, greetings, Joanna, and thanks for having me with you today. From a big picture standpoint, I think that farms should have four categories of employment policies. The first category are those policies required by law, and those would typically include an equal employment opportunity policy, which is a policy that essentially says that the employer hires, disciplines, fires employees without regard to age, race, color, national origin, and all of the many other protected classifications under federal, state, and local law. That would also include anti-discrimination, harassment, and retaliation policies. To the extent that the employer is covered by the FMLA, that category would also include an FMLA policy. And then various safety policies, including especially those covered by the OSHA grain handling standard, such as confined space entry, walking down grain, lockout, tagout, combustible dust, tractor safety, and a whole host of others. The second category of HR policies that each farm should have are those policies that put in place an early defense to the most common types of employment claims that we see. And the first among these are wage and hour policies that dictate that the employee must record all of their working time. There's been an explosion of federal and state wage and hour claims where an employee is alleging that the employer failed to pay the employee for all working time, whether that's preliminary or post-liminary activities before or after the shift, donning and doffing personal protective equipment, or working time during paid breaks or unpaid meal periods. An employer must require that the employee record all of their time on the time card. And so that's a really important policy to have. Within the second category also are the employer's standards of conduct. We assume that we have a professional group of employees that are committed to uh, behaving in a responsible manner, but all employers should have some basic work roles. Then the third category of policies that all farms should have are those policies that advance the employer's rights or interests. And in this category, I'm talking about confidentiality and non-disclosure policies that prevent an employee from misusing the employer's trade secrets or other confidential 
confidential business information. Among these policies should be a policy prohibiting personal use of business equipment, materials, or resources. And then an additional policy that I like to have is a no conflicts of interest policy, or one that at the very least requires the employee to disclose conflicts of interest when they arise so that the employer has an opportunity to act or decline to act depending upon the nature and extent of the potential conflict of interest. The fourth category of HR policies that all farms should have are those that are critical to the employer's mission or the employee's success within the organization. And so these are a form of policy that are, um, as a matter of employee relations, important to the employer to communicate to the employee at the outset or the beginning of the employment relationship. And this would include guiding principles and to some extent, if there are some key standardized operating procedures that you want the employee to be aware of, this is a good time to include those in the handbook. And the rest, from my perspective, are just chaff. And in real life, sometimes we have employers that have a, a beautiful 90-page employee handbook with all kinds of great policies, but if those policies are not being used in practice, they will come back and haunt the employer. The other thing that I see from time to time is an employer that includes all of its benefit information in an employee handbook. And the problem with that is the insurance programs change on an annual basis, but sometimes the employer doesn't keep pace with changes in the employee handbook such that the insurance information becomes quickly outdated. So I would encourage employers to be very careful about including insurance information in a handbook. It's better to do that on, on a standalone handout that you can give or update on an annual basis rather than the entire handbook. Really good advice. And we're going to dive into some of those HR mistakes or recommendations that uh, Troy has from his experience. And so you were mentioning these four different categories, and I'm assuming they're all written in the handbook. Should they be displayed in other ways that the employees have access to them or something you've seen with your clients? Should things be hanging on the wall uh, or if there's other forms that we should communicate some of these employee policies with farm employees? There are various federal and state laws that require posting of wage and hour rules, FMLA poster, for example, minimum wage and overtime. And so, yes, the employer has to have those posted in a prominent location where employees have access. And the other thing is that it's really important for the employer to actually communicate the employee handbook to employees at the time of hire and to orient employees on it. It's not good enough just to hand over the employee handbook and say, have at it at, at your discretion. The employer really needs to have a time of hire orientation and training program where it's walking through each of those policies and the expectations that the employer has of it. And as we all know, in uh, farming today, there's a significant immigrant workforce where English is frequently a second language, if at all. And so it's important for employers with, with large Hispanic or African populations where English is a second language to have those policies translated into their home language so that they have an understanding of what those rules are. Right. Really good insight. And now when we look at some of those farm managers and supervisors, how can a farm help their managers and supervisors be successful with HR matters? That's a great question, Joanna. But I think the first thing that farms can do to help their managers and supervisors be successful is to let them know that leaders have to set and be the standard at all working times. 
This means modeling positive behavior for others to follow, especially in times of disagreement. Workers will follow the lead of their supervisors. And so if the manager or supervisor wants their team to be successful, they have to constantly be the standard for all others to see and follow. And when we have somebody that's behaving in a professional manner, giving their best effort on a daily basis on behalf of the organization and the employees, the subordinate group is going to do the same thing. And it becomes infectious. And you can all of a sudden develop this positive momentum where we're all willing to walk through fire for each other. At the same time, when the supervisor or manager doesn't appropriately guard their words or actions in that fashion, it causes problems. The, the inverse is true. So that's, that's the first thing that farms should do is let their managers and supervisors know that they've got to be the standard at all working times. And remember that with a word, we can lift up or tear down. So we spend a lot of time together in employment, sometimes even more than with our direct family members. So lift up, help others be successful. Our job as a manager or supervisor is to help our subordinate group feel valued and be successful and accomplish their dreams. And by encouraging that group that leadership is personal, not positional. You don't need to have a fancy title in order to be a leader. You have to have positive attitude and effort and understand the expectations. And when you, as the employer, are giving, you're empowering your employee team that way, great things can happen. The second thing farms can do to help their managers and supervisors be successful is to commit to a systematic process-oriented approach to HR. And this is just the opposite of shooting from the hip and making it up as you go along. When you have a commitment to a process-oriented approach, that's the how and the why. And when you teach your managers and supervisors the how and the why, they'll have a better understanding and appreciation why we're doing what we do, and they'll be in a better position to communicate that to the rank and file team members, which increases our overall success. So for example, when it comes to new hire orientation, an employer should ensure that each new employee goes through that full orientation to protect against gaps. And this is in contrast to a, a small employer that is going to train each new employee differently every time where it's as we go, I'm going to let you know what you need to know, but I, I might forget to teach you a couple things because we don't have a systematic process where we're going to do it the same time every time. And when we do have that systematic approach, it becomes consistent, it becomes repeatable, it's predictable and employees are more willing to to accept responsibility and understand when we got a gap and that is the single best way to achieve long-term sustained success and when we have those systems in place it's hard to fail and i think too having those systems i mean you gave the example of when you hire an employee but what about you know in the second part of dairy stream we're going to be talking about workers comp leave of absence termination it's probably almost more critical to have a systematic approach when you're dealing with those types of situations and making sure that your managers and supervisors are prepared. You're exactly right. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but this stressed labor market that we're in, which makes it very challenging to successfully recruit and retain qualified employees, it's incumbent on, on us to put our best foot forward to develop our, our existing employees and keep them. And by adhering to that systematic approach, we're more likely going to be, be well-rounded and, and 
get their buy-in versus an employer that's shooting from the hip every time and causing anxiety among the employee group. Right. And that's why we are focusing in on this workable workforce series. And this is the last part. And we did cover retention and recruitment and onboarding, but this episode is focusing more on some of those legal matters. You mentioned this initially, Troy, some, you know, HR mistakes, but hopefully you can reemphasize certain items that you've worked with with your clients. What HR mistakes do farms most frequently make? Well, one of the mistakes that they make is not training their managers and supervisors on their legal duties to act. In the law, there's this concept known as respondeat superior, which stands for the proposition that an employer is liable for the acts and omissions of its employees in the course and scope of their employment. And in some cases, this means that the employer is responsible for the words, actions, and knowledge of its managers and supervisors, even if the employer didn't actually have knowledge of it. So this is something we call constructive knowledge, where the employer knew or with reasonable diligence should have been aware of its managers and supervisors' actions. For all of these reasons, it's critical for the employer to train its managers and supervisors to, again, carefully guard their words and actions and to be a professional at all times. Under federal, state, and local fair employment laws like the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and comparable state laws, managers and supervisors have a special duty to act to help their employer prevent unlawful discrimination, harassment, and retaliation in the workplace. They also have a duty to help their employer conduct a prompt and thorough investigation into each and every report of alleged discrimination, harassment, or retaliation that's made. And one of the biggest mistakes that employers make is when an employee complains about their supervisor, perhaps thinking that they're being treated unfairly, if the employee is using words like discriminating against me or harassing against me, the employer has a duty to take action. Even if the employer knows that there's no unlawful harassment going on, the employer still has to to satisfy its duty to act under the law, to conduct a prompt and thorough investigation, and to take some appropriate action in response to it. Now, it might be just a follow-up memo to the complainant or a discussion and a follow-up memo to the supervisor or manager who denies that any unlawful discrimination or harassment occurred. But here, we're demonstrating to the world through these memos that we're satisfying our duty to act. Contrast that with a situation where the employer receives a discrimination complaint and has to admit that, yes, the supervisor received that complaint, but never told us about it, and we never took any action in response to it because the supervisor didn't think it had any merit to it. That's a big problem, and we want to avoid that. And so it's incumbent upon the employer to teach its manager and supervisor about their duty to act and reporting these things up the the chain of command so that we can promptly investigate it. Another mistake that farms have historically made that I'm seeing them overcome with time is discounting the value of strategic HR and failing to give HR a seat at the management table. In years past, there was this old school my way or the highway approach to personnel matters that really doesn't work today. And there's several reasons why it doesn't work. First, today's farms operate 
in an increasingly regulated world under federal, state, and local law. And so a farm's long-term success today is based in large part on its ability to lawfully navigate a wide variety of employment, immigration, safety, environmental, tax, and other regulatory rules. This requires an understanding of those laws and how to comply with them, and that requires HR professionals. It can't be done part-time. It can't be done haphazardly. There has to be a real commitment from the employer to this. The second reason why that my way or the highway approach doesn't work anymore is because of the growth in employment claims that essentially find courts and laws uh, disregarding the fact that somebody's an employee at will and requiring the employer to articulate a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for the actions that it took. And so in other words, the burden of proof in these cases is shifted to the employer to come forward with positive evidence about why it engaged in the conduct it engaged in. And if the employer doesn't have good documentation in place for the important decisions that it's made, it opens the door for credibility disputes for some third party, a, a fair employment investigator, a judge, a jury to play Monday morning quarterback and second guess whether the employer's explanation is believable. And we never want to leave it in the hands of the, the judge or the official. We want to be able to put in place that kind of performance management or disciplinary documentation before we terminate somebody, because that puts us in a very defensible place to get a quick prompt dismissal of the most common types of claims that are raised versus getting into some very expensive, risky litigation where it's a he said, she said. We want to avoid that. Third, and I mentioned it briefly, is that in this highly stressed labor market, it's very difficult to recruit and retain qualified employees. Employees have a lot of leverage at this time and are a lot less likely to stay in an employment setting where they don't feel there's a future for professional development or where they don't feel like the employer has a high degree of care and concern for their professional interests. And so for all of these reasons, I think that's probably one of one of the bigger HR mistakes that we've made is we haven't given HR the requisite kind of commitment over the years. And then I'll say that a third mistake that farms make generally is failing to develop their safety and health program. We all know there's a lot of different ways to get hurt on a farm. And most of those injuries are preventable and are attributable to the employer's lack of knowledge, failure to provide training, or failure to audit or supervise the employee's work practices. And the sad thing is that in, in most cases when these injuries occur, the employee is just trying to be a good employee, trying to help the employer out. And a lot of times they don't appreciate the risk or they didn't realize that what they were doing was dangerous because they don't have an engineering background or maybe they didn't grow up on a farm and they're just trying to support their family. So as an employer, we all have a special duty to make sure that the employee gets home in one piece every day. That That's our our first charge is to do no harm. And so it's incumbent on farms to have a strong safety and health program where they're removing known hazards to the extent that's possible, communicating hazards to employees and training them on how to avoid them, uh, supervising employees to ensure that the employees are actually doing what, what they've been taught in terms of safety compliance. And that's challenging. I mean, again, that crosses a, a broad range of disciplinary, uh, disciplinary areas that small employers just 
don't have the resources to be an expert in all things. So that's why they have to lean on safety professionals. And that, that means tapping into your insurance agent, tapping into your workers' compensation insurer and liability carrier who have safety and health professionals that they provide as added value to their insurance. It means tapping into state safety and health programs. For example, I'm in Madison and, and in Madison, the state of Wisconsin has a program through the Wisconsin Hygiene Lab called the WISCON program. And it's funded through a grant from OSHA, the federal uh, agency that provides free safety and health program development, training, instruction, auditing to help farms get in good shape from a safety and health compliance perspective. All of us should be doing that on an annual basis to make sure that we're providing as safe a place as we, we can under the circumstances. I think Troy's stressing the importance of being organized. And Troy, I think I'm going to jump down to that question talking about avoiding employment discrimination, harassment, and retaliation claims. Because one thing you just talked about was some of those common HR mistakes. What can farms do to avoid those employment discrimination, harassment, and retaliation claims? Well, the first thing that farms must do is comply with their obligations under the law. And as discussed, this means developing a good equal employment opportunity policy, implementing and communicating to all staff an anti-discrimination, anti-harassment and retaliation policy. And hand in hand with that is setting and being the standard at all times. I can't tell you how many times over the 20 plus years that I've been practicing law that we've lost a really good middle level manager who was extremely professional but had a momentary lapse of judgment and violated our policy against discrimination, harassment, or retaliation leaving the employer with little option but to separate employment. And so from a big picture standpoint, we've got to ensure that our managers and supervisors are managing to compliance with those laws, that they're responding appropriately and promptly to employee concerns when, when they arise. And again, it, it also goes to embracing that approach to employee coaching and performance management. And this focuses on communicating ex expectations to employees and how employees can meet those expectations. Remember, employees aren't mind readers. They come to us with varying degrees of knowledge, experience, and expertise, and it's our job to help them be successful on a daily basis. And the focus is, is not to walk around with a, a clipboard and a checklist trying to get them in trouble or terminate them, but it's just the opposite. It's, it's trying to help them be successful because a rising tide lifts all boats. And in some cases, it's because we haven't done an, a good enough job of explaining the expectations and how to get an employee there. And so that that's the first thing we, we have to do. And then secondarily, it includes periodic written coaching to the employee so that the employee can't claim, no, that never happened. There's an, an old saying that if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. And we don't want to give the employee an opportunity to claim that the last six months that we've been coaching him on these issues, that didn't happen because we know that it happened, but it might be that he didn't really appreciate the gravity of the situation. And when we are more formal about that approach with the employee, 
several things happen. First, the employee starts to get it and recognize that if they don't make a change, we're going to course correct and they might not be with us for the rest of the journey. The second thing that happens is that the employee is more willing to accept responsibility later if things don't go wrong. Remember, they're, they're providing for a, a spouse or children. And if we catch them off guard and by surprise by terminating them without any advance notice or an opportunity to correct, they're going to go home. They're going to talk to their spouse and say, yeah, my employer didn't give me a fair shake. The spouse is going to defend them and say, you need to go talk to a lawyer. And that's how claims arise. Conversely, if we've done a good job and told this employee over and over again, here's what's going to happen if you don't get it together, that employee is going to be much more inclined to accept responsibility, go home to the spouse and say, no, I blew it. It's on me. I had every chance to be successful, but despite the employer's best efforts, I didn't make it, we're going to avoid a lot of those claims. Mm -hmm. And so those are some really easy but powerful things that the employer can do. When it comes to documentation, I mean, you said it's sometimes that verbal aspect, we can't docu document that. Is it going back? And a lot of farms have security cameras and having the footage of mistakes that have might have happened or previous message. What recommendations do you have when it comes to the documentation of some of the claims that might be happening? Documentation is, is really beneficial. Initially, it provides kind of heightened warning to the employee that things are getting serious. So we're escalating with some written communication. Second, it provides the employee with an opportunity to review the written expectations periodically and say, okay, well, here's it's tied to my performance or behavior. I need to get things together. But then what I mentioned earlier is that it eliminates the credibility disputes in terms of what what was said and and what are the consequences of, of continued violation and it frequently these discrimination claims are decided based on the evidence the employer's words and actions and the employee's words and actions and when they have a varying understanding of what the facts are now the the fair employment agency or court first has to decide what are the facts and then apply the law to whatever facts they find our job as an employer is to lock in place what the facts are so that the agency or the court only has to say, oh, here are the facts as presented by the employer. Here's how the law applies. And that eliminates a significant amount of risk and a lot of the defense costs that are usually incidental to defending these things. Really important to be make sure you're transparent. You have all your ducks in a row. Troy, what can farms do to protect themselves against unfair competition? Well, the first thing that farms can do is to develop a trade secret protection program. And this is a formal way of labeling trade secrets and other confidential information so that there can be no misunderstanding of what's considered confidential or not, whether it's recipes, processes, whether it's business information or, or revenue resources, re referral sources, et cetera and then implement various engineering controls to safeguard that information through, through locked cabinets, locked offices, password protection on computers, limiting access to those with an absolute need to know, and then having some administrative controls, or in other words, policies, again, limiting access use and disclosure of trade secrets and other 
confidential information. And then when you tie all of that in to a, a formal confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement for use with all employees in a particular job classification, then you're really putting your best foot forward to protect your, your key information. Now, it's important to understand that every state has its own rule concerning the enforceability of employee restrictive covenants. And employee restrictive covenants include confidentiality and non-disclosure agreements, and then they can go on to employee non-solicitation or non-competition agreements. But at a minimum, if you as the employer have some proprietary information or processes, then those employees that have access to that information should be subject to a, a confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement. And typically, each state has rules that say the employer needs to have a protectable interest because it's got the this proprietary information, and so it's reasonable that we have this type of policy. Those restrictive covenants have to be reasonable in time and territorial scope. They need to typically be limited to the minimum to protect against unfair competition, which is different than the type of fair competition that a stranger in the industry without your information can provide. And so this is one where you really don't want to rely on a form that you download off the internet, but rather you should be working with an experienced lawyer to make sure that your form of non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement complies with the jurisdiction that you're in. Because in Wisconsin, our statute says that if a covenant is overly broad in any respect, then that covenant is illegal, void, and unenforceable, which is a surprise to a lot of farmers that, that didn't realize that law is out there. So that's another area where an HR professional can provide significant value is to protect the key information that's mission critical to the company's success. Troy, just from your experience working with farms, how common is it that they have like some of these items in line? I feel like it's kind of new to me that hearing you talk about some of these things. Is this common that you see farms implementing this? I, I see it at the, the larger farms and cooperatives and manufacturing companies that are in the egg space. But on the, the smaller multi-generation family farms, they, they don't think about that. And and then what happens invariably is they develop a great process and now it's a, a wonderful asset to the business and they've got a key employee that they've been relying upon to help navigate it. But that employee leaves and maybe they never expected that would happen, but that person either goes and sets up shop next door or goes to the competitor down the road and all of a sudden we're scrambling about, hey, this guy represents a significant competitive threat to our business. What do we do? And in the absence of that kind of planning on the front end, there are limitations on, on what we can do after the fact. There are still some uh, state statutes and common law restrictions on an employee's ability to, to take property or to use property of a former employer in new employment, but it's not as good as if we had the bona fide trade secret protection plan in, in place, plus those confidentiality and non-disclosure agreements. And that's not a significant investment. It's, it's, it doesn't cost a lot of money or effort to put those systems in place. And again, I think that's in part because farms are stretched thin. They've got to do with a, a lot with less, and they don't always have an HR professional to lean on. It's not just managing cows anymore. It's managing the people and making sure that you have everything in line and that you're organized. We're talking with employment law attorney Troy Thompson. Two more questions as we wrap up this first part of Dairy Stream. How can a farm stay organized with HR items when it comes to hiring foreign labor? 
That's a great question, and it's one that all farms are facing, and the federal and state governments that are have farms in their jurisdiction are, are well aware of this issue and are, are trying to be helpful. But the first thing we have to keep in mind is that under federal law, an employer is not allowed to employ an individual that's not work authorized in the United States. So it's really important to have some working understanding of the rules of engagement here. And if you as the farm corporation aren't familiar with those rules, you have to work with a professional recruiter, a professional employer organization, or an immigration lawyer to make sure that you're navigating this, this area appropriately. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but it's really important to understand that, number one, we've got to do the I-9 process with every new hire at the time of hire. That's verify that they're who they are and that they're work authorized in the U.S. And I think that's an, an area where some employers fail to get it right. And then the second piece of that is making sure that, that you're communicating your policies and safety requirements to employees in their mother tongue so that they have the opportunity to have all the information that they need to be successful in your organization too. Because as much as the government is concerned about ensuring that the labor supply is there, they're equally concerned about employers that take advantage of vulnerable immigrant populations. And you don't ever want to be accused of being one of those type of employers. You want to be viewed as the good employer that's generous and, and with a high degree of care and concern for your employees and not the opposite. And final question for you, Troy, as we wrap up the first part of Dairy Stream, a lot of farms have seasonal workers. What advice do you have for HR management with those seasonal workers? My advice is that employers have to embrace their seasonal workers and not treat them like second-class citizens. And this means giving them the full employee onboarding and new hire training that you would give your permanent full-time employees. These people are working side-by-side full-time permanent employees and performing many of the same tasks. And so they need an opportunity to be trained on all of the safety policies, all of the employment policies so that, that they can comply and do the work safely. Don't let them fend for themselves out there, but give them everything that they need to be successful and productive. The other thing is, is sometimes with the seasonal group, they're traveling with their families and sometimes they'll, they'll bring kids into the workplace or ask their kid to come work side by side with them. And there are some strict child labor laws and there are some exceptions for, for farm labor, but by and large, we have to make sure that we're not allowing family members perform work either off the clock or without the training, without having gone through the hiring process. And so we, we should not be allowing employees to bring in their, their kids or family members and working off the clock or be the, off the books. Theme around this first part has been being organized and having that HR professional involved in your farm is critical. Our guest is Troy Thompson, employment law attorney at Axley Brindelson, located in Madison. We're going to dive into workers' comp, discipline, leave of absence, and exiting the organization after our break. So stay with us. We will be right back with Dairy Stream after we hear from our sponsor. Compier Financial is the leading financial service provider for agriculture and rural communities. Compier Financial serves the needs of farmers and neighbors with local offices in Illinois, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. To learn more, visit compier.com or contact them at 844-426-6733. Trademarks of Compier Financial, an equal credit opportunity lender. 
Welcome back. Dairy Stream is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. We are in the final leg of our Workable Workforce Series and talking with Troy Thompson. He's the employment law attorney at Axley Brindelson, located in Madison. And this second part is going to focus on workers' comp, discipline items, leave of absence, and exiting the organization, all real-life situations that we deal with on our dairy farms. And Troy, to... kick off our first question. We know farming is a dangerous occupation. Can you walk through the workers' comp process and dealing with an injured employee? The first thing that employers need to be aware of is that OSHA requires that certain injuries and incidents be reported to it on a timely basis. And the first is fatalities. Hopefully no employer ever has to experience a fatality on the farm, but if it happens, OSHA requires that the fatality be reported within eight hours of the incident. Second, OSHA requires that inpatient hospitalizations, amputations, and eye loss injuries be reported within 24 hours of the incident. And again, hope and pray that that never happens, but it does from time to time, and employers need to be aware of their reporting obligations. The second requirement is that employers are required to timely reported or alleged injuries or occupational diseases to their workers' compensation insurers when they become aware of them. And when the employer completes that employer's first report of injury and submits it to the insurer, the insurer will investigate whether there are defenses to the claim, including the possibility of a factual defense. In other words, was the employee actually working at the uh, at the date and time and did the incident actually occur? And then secondarily, the insurer will investigate whether there is a medical causation defense to the claim. In other words, does this person have a, a past non-work-related history of back problems such that this is a purely personal issue where there's a flare and a back condition? Or did the work activity accelerate, aggravate, or or cause the condition to come about earlier than it otherwise would have? And in some instances, it's a very obvious work injury. That's It's a traumatic injury. There's some breakage or letting go that is non-controversial. It actually happened. But in that second case of occupational diseases, especially where somebody has a prior known history of back problems or or what have you, and now there's a flare in conditions, every state has a slightly different standard on what is considered work-related. In Wisconsin, if the work activity caused the condition to come about earlier than it otherwise would have, then it's going to be considered work-related. And so sometimes employers are upset that I'm hearing this for the first time two months later when the employee is coming to me to say that the doctor told me that this is work-related. Well, that's not always a problem from the employee's perspective. That It might not be the employee's fault because, the again, the employee's not a doctor and they weren't thinking it was work-related. But after two or three times at the doctor, the doctor says, yeah, I do think that the work activity, the lifting, the pulling, the, the pushing, whatever it is, I I think that caused it to come about. And I I think you should report this as work-related. So sometimes that's on the doctor, not on the the employee. And ultimately, it's the insurance company's decision to initially accept or deny a claim. The employer's responsibility is to timely submit an employer's first report of injury. And when the employer fills out that first report of injury, they should have good precision and accuracy. They shouldn't make assumptions, but they they should share information with the insurance company so that the insurance company can conduct an investigation. The insurance company will typically take a recorded statement from the employee, then review the medical records, and in some cases might get an independent 
independent medical examiner to evaluate the employee to analyze the causation of the of the medical issue. If the employee is missing time from work, then the insurance company is typically going to push the employer to return the employee to light duty work as soon as possible because studies have shown that the sooner that you get an employee back to work, the more likely it is they're going to have a long-term successful return to work instead of a, a long leave of absence. So you're going to get your insurance company is going to push you for that early return. Sometimes the employer has a divergent interest and the insurance company doesn't necessarily want the employee back. And that is rife with some potential liability trap because an employer typically cannot retaliate against an employee for filing a workers' compensation claim. That's statutorily protected activity for which the employee can't be subject to retaliation. And so to the extent that there's an injury, lost time from work, and the employee doesn't return, if that's a decision by the employer, it has to be typically a decision unrelated to the fact of a work injury. The trickier one is sometimes where the employer claims that the injury is the result of the employees misconduct and violation of a uniformly enforced safety policy and that might give the employer a basis to terminate but that's a tricky area where i would recommend that you you confer with your your legal counsel before making that type of termination decision well troy i appreciate your thorough answers because i know that a lot of these you know situations that i'm throwing at you can go in a lot of different angles so now moving talking about that medical leave of absence you know what is the nature and extent of an employer's duty to provide reasonable accommodations or medical leave of absence for an employee this is a, a widely misunderstood area of the law, and it's important for farms to be aware of the nature and extent of their duty to provide reasonable accommodation. We're dealing with a federal law called the Americans with Disabilities Act that applies to employers with 15 or more employees. And then each state law has its own mini ADA law that you typically applies to all employers in the state. And so under federal law and in the case of state law, most of these laws require that the employer participate in an ongoing interactive process to explore reasonable accommodations. When an employee is having a difficult time performing work or has taken a significant amount of time off of work because of a medical condition, that is probably triggering an obligation on the employer's part to engage the individual in this interactive process to get a better understanding of how any medical condition that the employee has reported to the employee impacts the ability to work. And the types of questions would typically be, what is the condition? Is it temporary or permanent? Are you subject to any work restrictions? Are there any job duties that you can't presently perform? If so, what duties? How are you limited from doing those? And it's intended to be a two-way give and take where the employee is giving some job-related explanation of how the, the condition manifests itself in the, in the workplace. And there's limits on the type of information that the employer can ask. Typically has to be job-related and consistent with business necessity. So it's not an opportunity to delve into a lot of private affairs, but it's, it requires an understanding of what the job duties are and what the employee's needs are. And then if the employee suggests a reasonable accommodation that can be provided without undue hardship, the employer 
typically has to provide it. And this can include a broad range of accommodations, including job restructuring, modified job duties, light duty work. There's this concept called temporary clemency or forgiveness from application of particular duties or performance standards. So we, we might need to let this employee not hold, hold him or her accountable to some expectations for a period of time. And then a temporary leave of absence. And one of the, the most common misunderstandings is that employers who are not covered by the federal or state FMLA laws, sometimes those employers think, I don't have to give any time off to an employee because I'm not covered by those laws. But if you're covered by a state disability accommodation law, then you do. A temporary leave of absence is regularly considered a reasonable accommodation option. And it's always going to be in a gray area of how long that should go. But there are some really effective HR strategies that employers can provide to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. And more importantly, we know that work goes on on a day-to-day -day basis on a farm and the animals need to be fed and, and taken care of whether particular employees there or not. So it's a job that never ends and we have to be able to meet our obligations to the business. And so there are some strategies that we can put in place to help the employer be successful in these cases. Now, Troy, kind of diving into when we have some of those problem childs, those problem employees on our farms, what are some effective strategies for dealing with underperforming employees? Unfortunately, we're in this situation where we've got a lot of toleration right now for, for deficient performance or behavior because we don't have any backup options. We don't have a labor market where we can easily replace somebody. And so the most effective strategies are to apply a, a formal performance management approach. And I think that most employers in the egg space are good-hearted people. They want to treat people well and, and be hands-off and they avoid conflict. And so sometimes they don't deal with issues when they arise and it starts to fester. And then over a period of weeks or months, the employer finally gets fatigued and decides I'm going to terminate now, but maybe they didn't give it the college try because they were trying to avoid conflict. And over that process, it wasn't necessarily fair to the employee who didn't maybe didn't appreciate it. And so Again, it starts with communication and it ends with the good documentation in place that's setting the stage for the fact that you're showing a court or a fair employment agency that you gave this employee every opportunity to be successful. But despite your best efforts, they failed to take you up on it. They failed to comply. And it became more of an issue of either their lack of qualifications or their, their lack of effort. And when you can show that to a fair employment agency or court, you're much more likely to get a dismissal. And then these are not easy actions to take from an employer. Nobody wants to terminate somebody, especially when you know that they have a family that's relying on them. But when you've gone through that performance management approach, you can feel good that you did give the employee every opportunity to be successful. And you don't need to second guess, was this the right thing to do? Because it's really now on the employee that things didn't work out. So that's probably the best thing that, that we can do. We're kind of walking through the whole process. So let's say we, we told that underperforming employee they weren't doing a good job, but it has now come to the time that they haven't changed their behavior and it, you have to terminate that employee. What tips do you have for employers when it's time to terminate that employee? The first thing is to keep in mind that we need to do this with a great deal of dignity and respect. We never want to publicly shame an employee or 
perp walk them out the door in front of others, but we, we want to make sure that that we're treating them in, in a professional manner that's dignified because they did commit to coming to work for us and they did raise their hand to help us in our time of need. So we, we want to treat them well on their way out too. We want to make sure that the termination decision doesn't catch them by surprise for the reasons we've previously discussed. When we catch an employee by surprise and they weren't expecting it, they go back to their home, they're upset, and they're going to lash out at us through a claim or their spouse is going to encourage them to see an attorney. Whereas if we can get them to accept responsibility that we gave them multiple opportunities to be successful, they're less likely to bring that claim. So that's the second piece of it. And then third, we want these people, whether they're with us or not, to be goodwill ambassadors for a lifetime. And if we can treat an employee well, even on the way out, they're going to be appreciative of that and sometimes even thank us for our kindness and past opportunities for them, whether it's the training, the professional development, the efforts to help the employee overcome performance or behavioral deficiencies. And if we can treat an employee in that manner, they're going to be a lifetime goodwill ambassador, and that's a win-win for us. Final question as we wrap up our Workable Workforce series, what advice do you have for employers who want to dispute a former employee's unemployment claims? Unemployment is a statutory safety net for employees. So it can be very difficult to successfully challenge an unemployment claim. There's a strong legislative public policy interest in making sure that employees don't slip through the cracks when they lose a job. So most states are only going to deny unemployment in a minority of cases, a small minority. And in most instances, the employee is deemed eligible for benefits unless the employer can come forward with strong evidence of misconduct, which typically means a willful and wanton disregard of the employer's best interests. And before I I jump into an unemployment claim, I want to know, was there a rule? Was it effectively communicated to the employee? Is there strong evidence that the employee violated it? Did the employer conduct a fair investigation, which means that you gave the employee an opportunity to explain his or her side of the story. A fair investigation is not one where you'd never ask the employee his or her side of the story, even though it might be unlikely that the employee could say anything that would save their job. Out of fairness and and equity to the employee, we should always ask them before we make a decision of what happened from their perspective. And in some instances, the employee will take ownership and admit it. In other cases, they'll make it make some kind of incredible denial that supports them the termination decision because they were untruthful to you during the investigation process. And that is more like a willful and wanton disregard or a misconduct. So uh, the other thing that employers have to remember is that these unemployment hearings create an evidentiary record that the employer is with the employer's statement to the unemployment investigator or testimony at an unemployment hearing that the employee can try to use against the employer in some additional claim, whether it's a discrimination claim, a wage and hour claim, or any other type of employment claim. What a plaintiff attorney will frequently do is see if the employer made some statements in writing or via telephone or under oath at a hearing that can come back and haunt the employer later on down the road. And if the employer is not ready for that, then, you know, if there's slight deviations in what the employer said in a termination statement to unemployment and a later testimony, that's going to cause all kinds of problems for the employer. And we want to avoid that. 
lots of insight and probably encouraging you now to either review your employee handbook and all the items that you have in place and make sure that you are organized. Our guest today has been Troy Thompson. He's the employment law attorney at Axley Brindelson located in Madison. You've been listening to Dairy Stream, and this is a part of a four-part series that played from May to July. So if this is your first episode that you're turning into, I recommend that you check out the other three episodes that focus in on the Workable Workforce series. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joanna Guza. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, email us at podcast at dairyforward.com.